Hi, and welcome to Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. I'm your host, Donna Bishop. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for being here. This is the last of the best of episodes before we recommence brand new Fashion Talks for industry episodes next week. And today, the episode is with Oscar-nominated costume designer Louis Sakira, uh, specifically regarding his work with the Academy Award-winning Best Picture, The Shape of Water. And it was recorded live at Toronto Fashion Week. Enjoy. We are live at Toronto Fashion Week with a wonderful audience here in Yorkville Village. And today I am joined by Louis Sequeira, costume designer for The Shape of Water and assistant costume designer for the same film and steel. Thank you so much for being here. And congratulations, of course, on all the awards and accolades. Does it get old hearing Academy Award nominee for Best Costume? No, it's uh, it's completely new to me. So... Uh, I'm loving it. Well, congratulations. Before we start to dig deeply into um, into the shape of water, can you give us just a little bit of a background of, you know, how you got started and what is the process of the costume designer? How do you guys work together? How do you work with the director and sort of a, a big picture of, of what that role looks like on a feature film set? Um, I think both Anne and I came from the fashion world. Uh, I was a, a designer and had a small boutique on Queen West West by Ossington back when the earth was uh, cooling. And uh, <laughs> Anne was in um, I was a wholesale. sales rep for a clothing company out of uh, France. Yeah. And, and so, you know, left, left the fashion industry, had some friends that were working on a David Cronenberg picture, and, and I met some of them, and uh, I had the chance to be a trainee, and so I worked on a series called Friday the 13th, and I was a trainee on that, and then started to work through each each uh, position through the department until I started designing. Amazing, and how does the costume designer work with, with the director, with the art department, with the costume, with the production designer, pardon me, like when you sit down and, and you look at the script for the first time, what's the process in all of you working together on, on the director's vision of the, of the film? Uh, well, obviously you read the script uh, for the first time. And a key to that is if the script is really good, the images start floating up. Um, if the script's not so good, you're like, mm, trying, having a hard time envisioning the, this, this world. And with, uh, with Guillermo's uh, screenplay, um, it was pretty good. It was odd. It was, here's a woman falling in love with a merman. And there were a little bit of a cocking. But from that, uh, you basically start envisioning that, that world. Then, then you have meetings with the director, um, listening to his vision. And then you coordinate with the production designer um, on how he is going to be uh, developing the environments that these characters are in. And um, then it's a process of doing research and collecting um, fabrics and putting that together. And it just goes on and on and on. I mean, it's a, it's a long process. And with The Shape of Water, it's a, it's a period piece set in the, in the early 60s. And it wa- how many people have seen the film? Okay, so we won't put out any big spoilers because some people still haven't had the pleasure of seeing this beautiful piece of cinema. But, you know, it is period. It's set in the early 60s in the Cold War. What were some of the references and some of the research you were doing in terms of, 
you know, some specific references for starting to, to build the costume vision? Well, we did the, we did the basic, which was a lot of catalog, catalog referencing, just so that everyone in the department was very clear on, on what the basics were for that time. But then we, we also did a lot of advertising and, um, uh, personal references from that time. And we were looking at working class people and, and, um, we had four volumes, uh, probably 200 page uh, binders full of photo reference, uh, which uh, divided between working class and scientists and astronauts and um, to really create this kind of reference for, for us to look at. Uh, looking at period movies was also a, a great way to understand the interpretation of that period. And even though it was set in the 60s, for me, I wanted to have design elements that were from the 50s and from the 40s. And I, I was really was handpicking beautiful things uh, within both the reference and when we started curating this collection that we, I wanted to use in the, in the movie to bring together for the picture. And Anne, can you tell us a little bit about the textile research you did? Because I know textiles were such a huge part of, of the process. And, and you looked at a few. We did. We looked at a few. Lewis and I spent about a week in New York at the very beginning of prep. And uh, we swatched just like from nine in the morning, I think, until they closed at night. And we just went through. And what does it mean when you swatch? So we would go in and we would look at all the fabrics. And we luckily there, they have them already kind of sometimes pre-cut. And we would just go from there and just take, we had bags and bags of different wools and cottons and silks and everything you can imagine. And when we came back, um, we actually put it together in a library that we had um, kind of, we had a design kind of studio and we had this library there of fabrics done by um, all of our contacts in New York. And it just made it really easy. Like if Lewis and Guillermo needed something, we would refer back to that and then. To the wool section, to the yeah, cotton yeah, section. It was great. How many swatches great. would oh you say God. you had in your, in your library? Thousands. 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 That's Thousands. amazing. And then yeah. we, we had to, you know, coordinate with each of the vendors. So we actually created a double book. So one would stay with the vendor so we could reference yeah. we want. You know, we were in the store pulling two, pulling two of everything and leaving a, a set with the vendor so that it was an easy, mm-hmm. you know, we need 15 meters, meters of yeah. this. They were all numbered. So we would call Mood in New York and we'd say we want, you know, 15 yards of number two. They would. What we found, though, is the minute we were we, did, we were digging very deep in the back regions, and they'd pull it out. And yeah. By the time we called, it was, it was like, gone. oh, that stuff that's sold. Yeah. So. So it's a game of a little bit of hide and seek and a scavenger yeah, a hunt to find totally. the right pieces. A bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, Lewis, you said something when we were speaking earlier that I thought was so um, such a, an amazing way to kind of understand the the role of the costume designers. You said that part of your job is turning the costumes back into clothing. And can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? Because I think that's so, it's such a poignant um, comment on a film like this where you look at it and it's like, oh, they're, they're in clothes. Like we, costumes, we can think of these sweeping, you know, Elizabethan gowns and whatnot. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what I think a lot of people don't know about this project is that we built just about everything for the, for the lead characters. So that would be hats, belts, uh, ties, shirts, the suits, uh, undergarments, bras, slips, jewelry. Um, we had a hat maker in Chicago. And, and so that's amazing and, and very creative and everything's brand new. And now we have to make everything kind of look like it's lived a life. And, you know, we all are here. We're all wearing something that might be one-year-old, two-year-olds old. 
And, and, and so to turn those costumes back into clothing, I had a, a team of people that would over dye and create patina and, and, and that in itself, it's a very, for on a wardrobe level, it's very quiet film, but that was, I think the strength of it was to, to help tell that story and not look and say, oh my God, that's really brand new. And I think the story that gets told through some of the characters is so interesting. Like when we look at Gilles um, and he's got layers to his character that we sort of get hints of. And yet his costume is so layered as well. Are those sort are those some of the things that you're thinking of as you're telling the character's story with their costumes? Yeah, I mean, with with Gilles, um, Giles, 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 Giles sorry. Yes, no. uh, with Giles, um, the story behind his character was that he was quite affluent in the mid 50s. Um, doing advertising, and um, he was gay and in a time that it was not acceptable. And uh, and during this time, he developed a, a drinking habit, lost his job. And, and so uh, between styling him in a mid-50s um, look, but also creating these clothes that were quite old, but well taken care of. So, you know, little men's and well-pressed, but you could tell that every he really stood out from the rest of the film as being in a different time zone. Um, and then also, you know, that he was gay, it was like a covering up um, aspect to his costuming. And Eliza too, like one of the things that I think the film does so well is it kind of walks this line between whimsy and fantasy and, and the very real life of the cold war. And Eliza's character is the one that kind of seems to straddle both of them in many ways, because we see hints of whimsy in her character that we don't see in her colleagues or, or in the other members of the cast. Where do you incorporate that into her? And is that something you were thinking of? Well, I think, I think for her, I mean, she was the princess in, the, in, in this picture. And so uh, every element had to have a little beauty and a little grace, a little... Um, I, I remember us talking about you know, doing these undergarments that. Uh, you know, I, we ended up never seeing it, but it was the most beautiful slip in the world that we painstakingly made. But it was just because I wanted uh, beautiful details, which harks back to that finding a, a slip from the 30s and then incorporating, a, incorporating it in, into the picture. And would have been very indicative of how clothing was made at that time as well, would it not, Anne? Like you're replicating as things would have been at that time and then having to age them. The yeah, film. that's correct. I mean, Lewis has assembled this amazing team. Like, I'm new to the team. I've only been in it part, I think, three years. That's not that new. <laughs> it's new. It's new. They've been together for a long time, and he works so closely with the, the the cutter. Who it was like unbelievable to watch the simpatico between the two of them, and she just knows. Like, she they have the short the shorthand, and so they just it just happened. Like, he was literally like in front of our eyes. Yeah, it was amazing. Before your it was eyes. really amazing. It's too bad you don't get to see all of it in the film. Let's talk about the color palette a little bit because the palette of The Shape of Water is so beautiful. I felt like I was underwater watching it a lot of the time, yet it referenced that cold air, the Cold War era as well. How did that develop and how did you need, did you have to create your own hues or how did that come about? I think early on the film was supposed to be done in black and white. And that was yeah. something that was brought to my, you know, Guillermo said, let's do it in black and white. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we, I studied the fabrics on, on how they react in black and white. Cause it's, it's an odd thing. You, you deal with contrast, um, by way of a, of a meeting between Guillermo and the studio, it was decided that he could get more money for color for the picture. And so we went to <laughs> color. 
it was a three and a half million dollars, which in a twenty million dollar feature, that's that's a good size. Um, so we moved into color, and Paul Osterberry, um, the amazing production designer, uh, and I and Guillermo all discussed pa- uh, color palettes, and we would have um, the watercolors on on one area, a black and white palette in another area, um, and then there was a, a future um, palette which was mid '60s, which incorporated avocado and tangerine and cherise and um, and so the whole movie was really set happy in the black and white non-color world and, and the color was viewed as ugly future. So, um, we had a color palette that we, we would stick to and, and it was every color of green from the deepest ocean to the Caribbean for, for Sally, um, until we injected red into, into her costume. Um, well, and the red comes at very, you know, no spoilers, but the red comes at very specific times in the in the film. What 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 was the purpose of of having that pop of color? It wasn't just to kind of jar the eye. What what was it communicating for the for the characters? Well, I think at the be- at the beginning of the film, uh, you see the Eliza character looking at a pair of red shoes in a in a window and admiring them and and longing for them. Um, and, uh, you know, without any spoilers, there's an event that happens in the movie that, that changes. Uh, it's pivotal to her change in resolve. And red really symbolized her, her, her inner strength. Here was a, a woman that was uh, in the back, background, couldn't speak, and yet um, had so much to say for someone who, who had no voice. And uh, so the red was, was symbolizing the, the resolve and it started with a shoe and a headband and then and then grew from there i couldn't help but think of dorothy and the wizard of oz when i saw them and how eliza like she would have been familiar with that film as well given her her love of old hollywood movies well they of course weren't that old then it would have been in the 60s but that that whole the dorothy reference for her might have resonated as well as someone who was pushing herself to a to a new place to a new land yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, it never came up that, never came that up reference. That. It's the that's first an ever. Interesting, that's an interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Perspective. Film student yeah. history yeah. coming yeah. out. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's true though. But yeah, that was nothing that ever never really came up in any discussion. No, nope. mm. it was. Hey there, it's me, Donna Bishop, and I'm interrupting this episode just for a quick second to let you know that in September I'm going to be shaking it up a little bit and launching a special fashion talk series called fashion talks for industry. I will be interviewing experts in all manner of areas, legal, marketing, venture capital, other means of financing, grant writing, managing burnout, marketing, all kinds of things that will help you build your business. So whether you work as a freelancer, an entrepreneur, part of an organization, whether you are a designer, creative director, photographer, model, makeup artist, hairstylist, marketing, PR, publicist, if you touch the fashion industry, you are going to find lots of support for your business in these episodes. So let's get back to it. When we, you mentioned the future and how the color palette changes, we've got a shot up here of Michael Shannon in his house. Um, it's almost a shock to the system how jarring the palette changes. What was about the future that was happening? How else was the future being communicated? Because we do get pulled out of this world all of a sudden. I'm thinking of his wife and the costume and her hair. Well, I think, I think what from what Guillermo wanted us to see a completely different side of society so that we were, we were affixed to why the world in our film, everyone, but the Michael Shannon family was in this black and white world. And uh, conversely, I think it showed 
Michael Shannon being a modern man stuck in this, you know, backwater area doing his time so that he could move ahead within, within the government. Um, and I thought it was very effective. It was, it's a real moment of, of realizing that there is a world outside of, of the world of the Institute and Eliza's world. Like there's a whole other, a whole other place happening. Um, to go back to, to the Institute just for a sec, because I love, I was really curious when you were talking about how everything was new and you had to, to break it down. So when we look at the lab coats, like things we take as just like regular clothing, all of that needed to be to be shaped and broken. Is is was that part of the the process for you guys in those scenes where it looks like just stuff you could pull off a, a costume rack practically? Yeah, uh, those those lab coats were built um, as as were the cleaning uniforms, and uh, we sent them out to be sand washed uh, repeatedly to give them to really break down that the textile before we even began to paint and and age them. And I had an amazing team headed by uh, Melanie Turcotte from Montreal, who we were so fortunate to have her with her eye and incredible um, sense of color. Um, and we then took those things that had had the fundamental sand washing and then would add shading into uh, the, the, the cleaning uniforms were completely shaded. If you were to look at them right here, you'd be like, oh, my God, it's like a painting. There's like there's deep turquoise in a fold and, and everything was airbrushed. and then sanded and uh even the the accent color was dyed we had nine shades of of colors that we were trying to figure out which we want which one we wanted and Guillermo had picked and we had i'd say 30 yards of fabric that were draped it was like marrakesh they were draped over over racks um drying and everything was really specifically dyed to what we needed that it matched the tile in in the in the office in how the long did office. it take you to make all of these like the the from the process of starting production of the costumes to them you know being shot in production how long how long does it take to create all of this oh i think it was only i think it was about 10 weeks yeah um, i had 12 so, yeah we started came. yeah beginning of the rest of the team started beginning of june uh lewis started in may and we started shooting middle of august and do you have duplicates for characters? Like, does Eliza have various versions of her of her cleaning uniform? The cleaning uniform we had we, we had a, probably about five just to, to service the needs of of. Um, but the finale of the film, like Michael Shannon, everyone that was involved with the water, we had multiples uh, for that, and we actually uh, shot for three weeks in pouring rain at night, and all of those garments had interliners that we put in that were fused to help uh, keep the actors as dry as possible because here we were, you know, we're in October shooting all night at the dock in pouring rain and didn't matter that the water was heated. By the time it hit the actors, it was, it was freezing. The glamour of Hollywood. (laughs) And, and there we were under umbrellas, Anne and I, and we don't do the set. We're back at the office, but there we were till probably two or three in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, Holding umbrellas, keeping people warm. Uh, We had warm buckets for people's feet because really that was the worst. People were just so cold. And I want to talk about Eliza again just for a little bit because she clearly, she has a finesse for fashion herself. We see with her accessories. Talk to us a little bit about her shoes. Um, well, her shoes. So here's, here's a, a woman who we see very early in the film has a wall of shoes. And yet, peculiarly, she's wearing just one pair of shoes. And, and I, I took that from my mom, actually, who also was was kind of a fashion plate and would buy things 
Um, and much like many women of that time, uh, would wear the one pair, save all those shoes for, for, uh, for, you know, a special occasion. And so, um, she had a shoe fetish, but she, she didn't, she didn't really quite do it. And, and that, you know, that was, that also spoke to the red shoes. She bought those red shoes and it was one of many shoes that she had. And, and it spoke to her resolve at the time to wear those red shoes and especially to work, which in that day would have been simply cray cray. How did you and Guillermo come to work together on this? What was the process like in terms of you being brought into this film? Um, I had the uh, fortunate uh, luck of uh, doing a movie called Mama, um, where he executive produced. And uh, I was in a fitting with uh, Jessica Chastain, who had gone through hair and makeup and done this transformation of being from, uh, you know, a redhead to a short bob. I'm sure some of you have seen that movie. And so she was, uh, I put her in her first change, which was kind of a indie rocker look. And she went into the fitting room and uh, we opened the door and then I went in, was doing a little finessing. Sorry to go on, but we opened up the door and there's Guillermo del Toro. And he, by way of the wig and the look, he was just like, holy it's amazing. <laughs> and so, and that was the first thing I put on her. And it was one of the, the mainstays of the, the character in that movie. So we connected uh, immediately. And then he asked me to do The Strain, uh, where he directed the pilot. And then he would come in every season and do, you know, a Mexican 1960s Mexican segment that played into, into this vampire apocalypse or uh, 1800. Anyway, we. I had an ongoing, um, ongoing relationship, uh, during the course of a meeting, uh, near the end of the third season, he, after a production meeting, he said, can you wait a minute? And I'm like, sure. I thought, "Uh Oh, he's not liking something. And, uh, he said, listen, I'm doing this black and white movie, uh, about a merman and, and I want you to do it. I'm like, okay. Like, when does it start? So that's, that's how that came about. And what's his approach to costumes? How does he see costumes as being part of the landscape of the film? Sorry, I'm just talking no, away. No. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Well, for Guillermo, I mean, costumes are instrumental. A, a, a thing that he's told me that, he, that has stuck with me really since he's told me, and I incorporate into my own design, is that he speaks to when we walk into a set, not that picture, but when he... Yes, so when we walk into a set, uh, the set is there. The actors stand in a set, and and we see them from afar, and we get in we we get an environment. But the minute you go into a close up, the clothing becomes the set for for the actor, and it's the set dressing. And so, in design work, um, every angle is important. The back the back is as important as the front is as important as the side, and it's something that resonated to me um, in film and and. I take my fitting photos in the round, so I have people do a turn, and it, it helps my process of designing, but also we can see problems before they happen. And, and literally, that's what we do. Generally, we solve problems they don't even know they have in costume. Do you find you reference your background in fashion as you're designing for film? Yeah, I think so. It, it's all fundamental. Um, Mike Cutter, who I've known since I was 18, did patterns for me when I was in fashion. And we flash forward, this is marking 30 years that we've known each other, more than that, but 
but 30 years we've been working together and um it's totally part like the foundation that having done every position in the department having had the fashion background and i mean in the factory working with the contractors putting the buttons on uh doing the cut sheets uh all of that has helped when we're doing a film to be completely organized in because it's a business at the end of the day it's it's art but it's a business and one can be an artist and if you are over budget then that was nice because you're not going to get hired again so it really is about incorporating the the balance between art and finance and um yeah. Yeah, and what the final product needs needs to be. Totally. What about you, Anne? Do you find you're drawing on your fashion background when you're when you're working on set? Oh, for sure. Like exactly what Lewis said. I mean, it's I where I came from fashion, it was the same thing. I would go and I would, you know, I'd be in the um in with the designers and then I would have to get it to the customer. So it's the same kind of thing here. I work with Lewis and I we have to get it to set. So it's that same kind of fluid motion from one place to another. And that's what I do and like in the department. So yeah, and for that, sure. That's suppliers, that's tailors, that's, you know, we're the current project we're on, we ordered 2,500 uh, square feet of red dyed sheepskin for a Santa Claus costume. And from shape um, of water to Santa Claus. Crazy, right? <laughs> and, and it's coming from Istanbul. And, and so, you know, dealing with, with that, I mean, again, from our fashion background, it's, it's, uh, in such an integral part of being able to deal with the varying shades of, of film. Cause you can, you can be doing something futuristic and the next one will be thirties. Um, and you have to draw on all those experiences to, to, uh, to get the, get the, the best look you can. Now, there's clearly an amazing ride that's happening right now with the awards, award season and all the amazing accolades that Shape of Water and, and you guys personally have been receiving. How does working on a project like this, like Shape of Water strikes me as one of those like special once in a lifetime kind of projects. How does it, how does it change you beyond the accolades and, and the nominations? How does it, does it shift you inside in terms of the lens you look through new projects with or what is What's been inspiring about about this project for you guys? I've oh. talked a lot. So. <laughs> oh my gosh! I, you know, when we first when Lewis came to me and said we're going to do this movie with Guillermo, I have to say I was a little terrified. <laughs> um, but you learned someone like Guillermo and and Lewis. You just you kind of learn so much. I can't imagine doing another film that will be anything like this. Like it was so special. We were on set all the time. We were there for every moment. And now to see this happen and everyone, you know, it's so well received and everyone's loving it. And it's like, it, it's so, so unbelievably special. It's a gift. Like it really, truly has been a gift, this film. And I, I mean, we would go to a new set, for instance, the hallway set in Eliza's or Eliza's apartment. And literally we'd be like, oh, oh my God, God, this is beautiful. Like exquisite, the set dressing, the art direction, and then to place our clothing in it. It, it was and then to see a, see the first time it's being being actually filmed and the performances, because the performances are amazing. I mean, Sally Hawkins, for a person who cannot speak, the, the emotions that she can emit are unbelievable. And the cinematography and um, I'm telling you now and I'm still got shivers. It, it really is uh, at once in a lifetime. I hope I hope it's not just once. No. But um, it was uh, something that everyone poured their heart and soul into. And I think you can see it on screen. And I think that's what people um, take with it. 
And was it lovely to shoot in Toronto as well with both of you being Canadian? Was it nice to do it on, on home turf? so to speak. Was that just another kind of layer of awesomeness? Oh yeah. Working at home is amazing. Like, it's, <laughs> Yeah. There's definitely a, you know, a sense of calm and peace and we have, you have your people around you, you get to go home at night. It is, it was great. Guillermo loves Toronto. He loves his Toronto cruise. He's, you know, very thankful. So it was definitely, it was definitely great to have, to be here. And, and the locations too. I mean, Guillermo was celebrating um, the locations in, 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 Toronto. So like the Lakeview lunch, um, he loved that, that place. And, uh, we shot, uh, interestingly enough, we were just in Hamilton and the car dealership, which was an old, uh, old, uh, drugstore in Hamilton. Again, a whole different world, you know, in the, in the movie where you go to this slick, uh, location and it's been torn down and we were having lunch across the street. like, Oh, and so it's kind of, it's kind of great to, to know that that place has been put on the screen and will be remembered in the scenes where I'm thinking at the, at, in the opening, it, did, was there act like it's where it's un, literally underwater. Was that mostly CGI or was that, were you having to manipulate the fabrics and everything in some sort of tank? Like how did, how did that opening scene as we were coming through in the credits, this is not a spoiler. You can like, it's in the first 30 seconds. Um, well, with, with the beginning of the film and, and the, the end of the film, I think that's what I love about Guillermo's movies. Um, in general, he always picks you up, tells you a story, and then drops you back down. And yeah. I think you will find that with every last film of his, um, from Cronus to Devil's Backbone to... Um, Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth. It's always a pick you up and drop you down. In this case, it was in water. And so there was some discussion about doing uh, tank work versus what what in the industry is called dry for wet and so it was decided after much discussion to do it uh, dry for wet so that whole opening sequence um is done with incredible lighting slowing the frame of the camera down um you know sally was in a harness everything was on wires um and we built a, a nightgown that you know ripped open and encompassed the the harness um and it worked really beautifully. And the same at the end, um, you know, Sally's coat was made out of a double knit. Her dress was uh, a polished cotton. And so we were doing dry for wet at the, at the end as well. And so I, my, I thought, well, we have to do this in something else in order to give that flow. And so, again, she was on a harness and we built the coat in a viscose knit um, that had the same feel um, texture wise, but was very limp and 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 moved and then we were able to find a uh, a rayon that had the exact same textile qualities and we built the costume um with that and so again with a little bit of a fan and beautiful lighting uh you'd never know it and uh you know i talked to people out of the industry and they're like what but but um very cool and i thought it was so amazing for her character when we to see her in the red coat at the end, like that was just very indicative. We see the shoes and then we see the headband. And then at the, at the end, she is encased in that, in that color. Yeah. And, and it painstakingly, we, we were deciding what color red to work with all that green. And, uh, it's quite a blue red, which is really quite, quite stunning in, in that, um, color palette. Have there been any pinch me moments that come to mind immediately through this, amazing experience. I had one yesterday. 
<laughs> with seeing a picture of Lewis with Meryl Streep. And that was it for me. I was like, oh my God. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> that was my pinching moment for sure. Yeah. I couldn't, it was amazing. I was so happy for him. Yeah. Uh, we had the, the Oscar luncheon on Monday and uh, uh, it was just incredible. Un- unbelievable. So, you know, you're in that, you go up and take the classroom photo and, you know, we've all seen those things, you know, Lucille Ball and, you know, Greta Garbo. And, and, and so they called my name and that walk and you, you literally are floating. You, <laughs> I don't know how I got from my table to, <laughs> to that. And, and then, um, then they, you know, take all these photos and you're kind of stunned. And then they said, you know, okay, congratulate yourself. And everybody just screamed and, you know, did their thing. And, and it was really amazing. Well, we will able- be watching for the awards and rooting for the shape of water for sure. Lewis and Anne, thank you so very, very much thank for you. the conversation. It's been a pleasure having you here. If people want to, uh, to follow you on, on social and, and see, you know, give you shout outs when the awards come up and where can people follow you? Oh, I'm AMSYYZ on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. And Lewis? Uh, Lewis uh, underscore costumes uh, on uh, Instagram. On Instagram. Thank you everyone for being here. Thank you so much for joining me here on Fashion Talks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends, your family, on your networks. It would mean the world to me. Fashion Talks is done in partnership with the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards. You can find out more about them at CAFA Awards, C-A-F-A-W-A-R-D-S on Instagram. This episode was produced by Jason Perrier. You can find him on Instagram at a Jason Perrier. You can follow the pod at Fashion Talks Pod, and you can follow me at This Is Donna B. All of us on Instagram. I hope you will join us again next week. Thank you so much, and have a great day. Mm-hmm.